I should like to call on you when you're at home, but I suppose a young person like your good self is not in a position to receive visitors of the other sex. Xi Feng feigned a laugh. We're all one family, all one flesh and blood. I don't see that age comes into it. Jia Rei was secretly delighted by this encouragement. So you were saying there's a there's a kind of there's a snake in the grass, so to speak. Yes, yes, there is. <laughs> uh, and that snake in the grass is. We got Jare emerges um, quite suddenly. Quite, he basically scares or startles, I should say. Uh, yeah. Shifeng. Uh, and so, yeah. Let's just briefly remind ourselves. Jare, as we were saying before, is uh, he's the grandson of Jia Dairu, who's like a you know venerable older man within the Jia clan and Jia Dairu is the is the teacher at the clan school but Jia Rei had to kind of stand in for him uh one day when Jia Dairu had other business to attend to right and we learn that we learn about him then that he is rather kind of uh craven and self-interested and the reason why uh things kind of descended into chaos in the schoolroom in the way that they did was because he was more interested in playing favorites um, and trying to kind of curry favor with Xuepan, uh, who is one of the important males of the Xue family who were related to the Jazz through uh, marriage. He was more interested in currying favor with him by essentially by, by, by kind of favoring whichever young man Xuepan was interested in at the time than he was in delivering justice, as it were, you know, finding out who'd, who'd done wrong and punishing them accordingly. So we know that he's a bit of a kind of slimy tick. A highly contemptible character. He is, yeah. And, and so he suddenly emerges from behind a, an artificial rock, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that it's important from the plot that he just kind of pops out of nowhere. And so this is clearly something that he has... It's not accidental, although he presents it as such. He's definitely... He's on the hunt, you know. Yeah, he's been lying in wait for her. But the fact that it's an artificial rock, the Chinese is jia shan shi, so mm-hmm. fake mountain rock, basically. And and so you know, in your in your Chinese traditional you know garden, you've often got these big, impressive looking pieces of rock, or several kind of assembled together into a sort of something resembling a small mountain. And it's one of those that he's he's emerged from behind. But I think the fact that it's fake, well, again, it's bringing the the real fake dichotomy that runs through the book but also i think it's intended to be a a symbolic reference to his the falseness i suppose of his uh, of his nature yeah maybe so he's part of the jack land but he's he's heavy on the false side of uh indeed on the ja side on of, the, the jazz side you know, of ja. on the false ja yeah th- this i'm starting to think that the 
the lovely poem was to give us a breather before we have to work our way through this um, slimy... Uh, Wade our way through this filth, yeah. Innuendo-laden conversation. <laughs> Do you have like a favorite line or anything? He's like, don't you even know who I am, cousin? Mm. And Shifang has a really good, re- really good response. She's like, it isn't that I don't know you, but you did come up rather suddenly. I, I wasn't expecting to see you here. And, and then he has this awful... He, he cites fate... But in the cheapest, if this is fate, this is the cheapest fate imaginable. He says, yeah. we must have been fated to meet cousin. I never expected to meet my fair cousin here, but lo, there must be a bond. Yeah. So he's being a real, a real creep, you know. And so we, we really don't feel good about this. And, and, you know, I felt slightly apprehensive on Wang Xifeng's behalf reading through this. Um, yes, yes. W- one thing about that fate point is the term he used he uses is yuan he says yo yuan to me right. it must be fate right and, and, and we've seen that a number of times already right right but we've also had another word meaning something like serendipity which is ke chiao. and i think that one thing we might try and keep an eye on as we go through the book is to observe the difference in which ke chiao and yo yuan or just this yuan idea are used because they're i suppose some similar concepts but I think they're deployed in quite different ways uh, in the text. So this we can understand is not serendipity. It's not something that's happened by accident. This is definitely something that he has willed himself. He also comes across as something of a dimwit. Is that a, a fair characterization? I, I think so, yeah. And, and Shifang is not about to um, suffer fools lightly, let's say. He, yeah, he's, he's very easily fooled. And she, by contrast, is extremely sharp. So, you know... In short order, she's able to manipulate him quite effectively. Okay, so what's the plan? Well, so she talks nice to him at first after getting over the after getting over the surprise, and she very quickly deduces what's going on, what kind of game he's trying to play. But rather than rebuffing him outright, she decides to lead him on, get his hopes up a little bit, uh, so that she can more kind of completely defeat him uh, or or kind of humiliate him later on. So she says, "I'm sorry, you know, I can't." I can't stay in chat with you right now because I have to return to uh, my aunts who are at the party and, you know, maybe we could meet some other time. And he says, I should like to call on you when you're at home, but I suppose a young person like your good self is not in a position to receive visitors of the other sex. Shifang feigned a laugh. We're all one family, all one flesh and blood. I don't see that age comes into it. Jia Rei was secretly delighted by this encouragement. And so... Uh, she she intimates that he can kind of come around and visit her uh, in her in her chambers anytime that he likes, and then uh, and then they part ways. But she, knowing that he's probably watching her walk away, deliberately kind of dawdles and walks walks slowly, right to, to kind of um, I guess sort of further um, provoke him. But meanwhile, she's thinking, "What a disgusting creep." So this is definitely a reflection of her character. Um... For better and for worse, I think it's unclear whether this particular stratagem is entirely uh, to her advantage or not. I, I think it's going to be maybe unclear even later mm. in the story as well, where she's clearly not following the path of avoiding conflict. So maybe this is a reflection of. I think we've come to associate Shifang uh, with a certain craftiness. But here it's kind of craftiness mixed with vindicativeness. Yeah. 
And so maybe that could be a a potent combination. So she, I mean, the exact term she, it, I think the Hawks doesn't really capture it. She, he uses this kind of faintly outdated language where she says, one of these days I'll settle his hash for him. Then perhaps right. you'll realize what sort of person he's up against. But the Chinese that she uses is uh, So sometime soon I will make him die in my hand. Um, okay. Which, which is or, or kind of by my hand, I suppose. It's obviously like a... Hyperbolic. Kind of hyperbolic, thing. exactly. But it's definitely a bit more extreme as a as something that she's she's resolving to do. Right. And maybe that's a, a kind of unintended um, premonition of sorts. Mm. So she she hurries back to hang out with her aunts. And we, we glossed over it before, but there's a character who we haven't really been introduced to before, who we get a little bit of exposure to here, which is Lady Xing. Right, yeah. So she is the stepmother of Jia Lian, so Wang Xifeng's husband's stepmother. Okay. Um, so she's the wife of Jia She, who is the elder of the two sons of grandmother Jia, right? Uh, that sounds good, yeah. Uh, family <laughs> so, tree. It's always good to review that family tree. Yeah. So, so, so in the wrong branch of the Jia clan, you have grandmother Jia at the top. She has two sons, Jia She and Jia Zheng. Jia right. Zheng is father of Jia Baoyu, our central male character. Mm -hmm. And he is also the wife of Lady Wang, Wang Furan. Right. And then, so Jia Zheng's brother is Jia She, as we said. And he's the father of Jia Lian, who's the husband of Wang Xifeng. And he, his, his second wife, we're to understand, is this Lady Xiang, basically. Right. So she's one of the kind of important women of the of the wrong branch of the Jia clan, but we haven't really encountered her much so far. Right. Okay. And what does she have to say here? Not too much, to be honest. She seems to be kind of uh, of a pair with Lady Wang, but we know that she will go on to be a more important character. And without giving too much away, I understand she may have a, a rather bad relationship with Wang Xifeng her stepdaughter-in-law okay so i guess readers uh take note <laughs> yes yeah, yeah yeah exactly keep an eye out so they are they are up in the in the pavilion um the celestial fragrance pavilion which i guess is kind of an interesting name uh because it it vaguely recalls the the dream sequence in chapter five um mm -hmm. where jabayu goes off uh into the the land of illusion, which is a kind of heavenly realm. And a lot of his time there is occupied with with smells and flavors in this kind of heavenly heavenly realm. Uh, so here we see it transported down to, to Earth. Yeah, heaven on Earth, you could say. Indeed. Um, indeed. And they are there watching the uh, the actors, the players, who've... So, so for entertainment for the birthday, originally they planned not to have any entertainers because... Uh, they had hoped that the patriarch Jia Jing, the the Taoist, would be would be there to join them, and that they only found out relatively late on that he wouldn't be coming. So, in the space of a couple of days, they've had to, you know, ask around and get uh, a troop of actors to um, to provide some entertainment. Which again kind of reinforces this idea that they are unintentionally or not celebrating his absence. Yeah, um, 
which gives it a kind of a perverse or Dionysian flavor to it. Yeah, so there's this kind of void at the center of the at the center of the celebration, this gap, you know, where the guest of honor should be. And there's something slightly funny about the actors to me. They rather than performing a particular play, they almost have a menu, and you can choose different scenes or songs, and they'll perform them on on command. They take requests. Exactly, exactly. They 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 take requests, which I guess you know seems kind of strange to to a modern audience because that's you know rarely how we encounter actors but i suppose it would have been perfectly normal not just at this time in china but at many times in in many places you know actors traveling in a troupe would or working in a troupe would have memorized certain famous scenes and they'd be able to play them out on command uh, essentially that and that really would have been how they made a living and so shifang gets to choose it's her her turn to choose which play and let's see here what does she choose one scene from The Return of the Soul and the other Guanian plays his guitar. Yeah. From The Palace of Eternal Youth. Yes. And I was trying to, you know, I was thinking, is there some, is there some great significance to this? It, uh, the thing is, without having that kind of in-depth understanding of these, this cultural, inf- you know, familiarity with this, the culture of the time, it's hard to know exactly what they, uh, what they represent, if anything. You get the feeling that perhaps it's it's not intended to be just without significance. This is definitely a moment where, yeah, I, I wish I had some kind of fanciful interpretation. But anyway, they they so they sit and they sit and watch these um these plays for a bit, and then eventually I think they they decide to call it a day there. So Lady Xiang and Lady Wang are both quite tired and decide to to go home. And cousin Jun Jia Jun says to them, you know, oh, we'll come back tomorrow and, and spend some time together. Um, but Lady Wang says, "No, I don't think we will. We're quite tired. We'll um, we'll just rest up tomorrow." So you know, you kind of get a little glimpse of her, of the type of person she is, I suppose. Um, but uh, the one to make uh, frequent visits is, in fact, uh, Shi Feng, because she's still she she's she's going to make a few visits now to uh, Ching Kaching, um, whose health is going to continue to deteriorate, and so. You know, much of the remaining the remainder of the chapter deals with her her visits back to see Qin Shi and kind of the passage of time. And so we get through to the winter solstice, so the the thirtieth day of the eleventh lunar month. So a, a, quite a bit of time has passed, you know, because um, yeah, yeah, mid autumn is the fifteenth day of the eighth month. At the time of the party, it was already a couple of weeks after that, at least. So you know, a bit of time has gone by, and Qin Shi is still seems to be hanging on. What, one thing that I think is, you know, maybe worth worth mentioning is that several different people express fear that the worst will happen. And they they say, you know, uh, in Hawks it's translated as if anything should happen to her. It's that kind of phrase, you know, uh, uh, a very indirect way of referring to somebody dying. And this is quite well reflected from the Chinese. The Chinese, they use this phrase... Uh, Chang Duan, which Chang is long and Duan is short, and and so it's a it's a kind of highly euphemistic term. But it, but again, it means essentially to 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 have a, a mishap, to uh, encounter some kind of trouble, um, uh, and and to die. Mm. But but it's just to me it was interesting because it's a good example of how, as with so many things, you know, important life events. There are 
in this kind of Chinese high society of the time, a lot of creative and euphemistic ways of referring to these difficult things so that you don't have to sort of address them absolutely head on. The, the end of this chapter has a kind of, it seems more and more inevitable that she is going to uh, pass away. Is that the impression you got? Yeah. They even begin making certain preparations, it seems. Yeah. So she, so Wang, Wang Xifeng goes to visit um, Qin Shi, and she's kind of not really any, she's not obviously worse, but not really any better either. She's managing to eat a little bit, but she's very withered or wasted away kind of looking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, in the Chinese it says, Dan na lian shang shen shang de rou dou shou gan le. So the, the flesh on her face and body was all withered and dry. The hox is pitifully wasted. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you get a real sense of the fact that she's 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 really struggling. There's a sense that she isn't eating, uh, which kind of makes you wonder, is this, again, there still is a sense, is this psychological? Mm-hmm. Because if this is a psychological condition and you don't eat, you can produce these kinds of effects. Yeah. Is, so, so do you think there's a possibility that she is deliberately or otherwise just starving herself? I wouldn't say deliberately, but mm. I wouldn't necessarily... I think it's meant to be unclear. And I think it's meant to be... She's the first... She's potentially the first person in this story to uh, whose demise is of the heart, or mm-hmm. from the heart, rather than purely some kind of external ailment. Yeah. They even mention that, yeah, they're... They're basically preparing uh, fine wood for the. They don't want to say coffin, so yeah. they kind of they allude to it. It's a tabooed term. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so having visited Qinshu, Wang Xifeng goes to talk to Yao Shi, you know, one of the one of the kind of important women of the of the Ning household. Uh, and as you say, they have this conversation. So, tell me honestly, said Yao Shi, what did you think of her? Xifeng sat silent for some time with a lowered head. There's no hope, is there? You'll have to start getting things ready for the end. Of course, it's always possible that doing so may break the bad luck. I've already been making a few preparations on that side, said Yoshu. The only thing we haven't yet got is the right timber for the you-know-what. But we're looking round all the time. So yeah, again, it's this discomfort in talking directly about, about death, always being euphemistic about it. And, and in the Chinese, yeah, they say, that thing is the way that they refer to the coffin, you know. Right. Uh, and so it is very much like the the you-know-what, the thing that shall not be mentioned. Yes. Kind of a somber note for the chapter to end on, with the one exception that um, we learn a little bit more about Jare's visits mm-hmm. to Wang Shifeng yeah. that have corresponded with, uh, I guess, by coincidence, with her visits to uh, Qin Shi. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of he he's going to the wrong house when she's at the Ning house and vice versa. Yeah, and we think that that you know sometimes this is genuine coincidence, but sometimes it's just an excuse, you know. Oh, okay. When he's popped around, to, I, I I feel like maybe that's the suggestion. But yeah, he pops around to visit one time when she is she is there, and Wang Shifeng is talking it over with her her maid, uh, Ping Er, patients. Yeah, with whom she has a very close relation. And so she's confiding in Pingar. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so they're talking it over. And what does Pingar say when she hears about what's been going on? You know, what his, his plans are. She uses this very um, 
evocative tone of phrase. So like a frog wanting to eat the the meat of a of a swan or goose. So, oh right. Laihama So a scabrous or like mangy toad wishing to eat the the flesh of a of a goose. Uh, of a swan rather. Um I, I mean spot the lie. <laughs> um, so. And 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 she goes on to call him Mei Renlun de Huan Dongxi. So like uh, an inhumane scoundrel or bastard. Um, yeah. So yeah. Okay. She she Go doesn't she doesn't pull her punches. Um, and you know she, I think she's kind of hit the nail on the head. I do think that that first turn of phrase is quite an interesting one because it conveys two things separately. One is the idea of somebody reaching for something way out of their league. You know, uh-huh. the the frog wanting to eat the the swan is yeah absolutely you know the imagery is very clear it's someone reaching for something far beyond their their limited talents um mm. but also it, it it conveys a sense of uh, sort of lechery um the frog <laughs> represents a kind of you know like um lascivious character I, I would say the colorful character of her language is probably a reflection of how close she is with uh, Wang Shifeng. Yeah. Otherwise, she probably wouldn't dare say these kinds of things, especially because in the scheme of things, I, I would say that Jerry's status is higher than her own. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean she, he, he is a full man of the Jiao clan, even though he is, he's a relatively minor member of it. But, but yeah, absolutely. You know, he's a, she's a servant. He's a, a member of the, of the clan. Uh, and, and he is... You know, he's he's a man as well, which I think probably does accord him some higher status. Right. And so what's the plan? What's the do do we get a sense at the end of what uh Wang Shifeng has in store? Or is that part of the, is that that's a cliffhanger, I think. Right? Yeah, we get the sense that he, she is planning in some way to uh ensnare or entrap him. Um Yeah. And um, something's gonna happen. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess we have to wait and find out in the next chapter. Um, okay yeah that sounds great so would it be how about now i want to maybe preview for you this um this presentation i'm working on yeah absolutely um so i mentioned before that i have a kind of a a conference presentation tomorrow and the what i wrote on actually kind of developed naturally out of our conversations um and so in previous uh in previous episodes we spent some time discussing uh, Hawks's translation of uh, Hong Lo Meng, the uh, as not traditionally, it's usually translated as um, "Dream of the Red Chamber," right? Yep. But uh, Hawks tends to eschew that particular uh, rendering, instead going with uh, "Dream of Golden Days." And so I've been thinking a lot about yep. uh, what's the motivation here? How does red connect with gold and how does how do all these color um significations interact with the wuxing system and how are we to treat this as you know modern scientifically minded people who just happen to be interested also in uh literature and so i've kind of organized these thoughts here and i'm going to try to this this presentation is not supposed to be more than like 10 minutes or so and so this is going to be kind of a, a unique uh kind of uh, experiment for re- rereading the stone where uh, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a rant, but I guess, you know, if you want to stop me at any point, that's fine as well. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, whatever is, hey, hit me. whatever you're, you're feeling. 
And so I'm not going to actually read. I have a strict no reading papers policy. I, I, I really despise when uh, academics do that. The whole idea is that we're in person. We should talk to each other as people. So I'm going to kind of condense for you what I wrote. And so, yeah, why, do, why does Hawks understand Hong as, as golden? And how is this going to relate to mm-hmm. the other uses, actual uses of golden in terms of Jin uh, that, that also figure yep. prominently in this, in this novel? On one hand, you could say, you know, why are we having this issue with the kind of an ambiguity between red and gold? Aren't, shouldn't it be the opposite? Shouldn't red and gold be like standard universal forms? You know, what's the, what's the Shakespeare line? Uh, if you pluck me, don't I bleed? You know, and the implication is everyone bleeds red. You know, we all bleed the same color, right? If you prick us, do we not bleed? Merchant of Venice. Do, if you prick us, do we not bleed? Okay, yeah. And so that's one kind of something you think would be universal. And I've even, I found kind of scientific or scientific-ish papers that talk about how in, in all languages, there's um, supposedly a, a color for red uh, and how this is the most universal of the colors, right? And so here we have this, this ambiguity. Yep. At the same time, you could say, uh, isn't gold also a kind of standard? Don't we have this idea of the gold standard? That's an expression, and we have the historical uh, gold being supposedly the basis for various currencies. And, and so yep. why are we having this issue between red and gold? It seems like it should be the opposite. It should be very uh, cut and dry. And so maybe one way to proceed here would be to look at the kind of the materiality. Because I'm, I'm always saying, like, let's do a material analysis of literature. But what does that mean? So what is the materiality of, of red? You know, should we go back and should we look at, you know, historical uses of uh, cinnabar, uh, which would be would be associated with the color of vermilion or ju in Chinese. Um, mm-hmm. and, it, we, we, and we could do that. We could talk about uh, how China became associated with red, how historically Chinese red was an especially red form of red, you know, the reddest red, arguably redder than red. And so you can talk about what, mm-hmm. what, that, what that even means, maybe. And again, we could do the same thing with gold while also noting if we want the materialist analysis not to be vulgar materialist, we could talk about, you know, class differences in one's appreciation of gold. We can see nowadays a kind of a nouveau riche propensity toward ostentatious displays of gold. Whereas if you're, if you're, if you're from older money or a bourgeois background, it might be not the kind of conspicuous consumption you'd associate with what uh, Thorsten Veblen was talking about when he created that term. It, nowadays, we have almost kind of what, what I want to, yeah. want to term a kind of inconspicuous conspicuous consumption where you have, you know, you don't have, you're not going to wear the gold chain, but you'll have, a, you know, maybe a fancy name or you go to a fancy school with a fancy name. And, and in the American case, maybe you have, the only gold you have is a, a gold health insurance plan. And so it's become abstracted, yeah. even though the... Um, the competition's there, the invidiousness is still there, but it's it's taken on a more abstract character to it. And that, that could be a part of a materialist analysis. Mm-hmm. And I, I've also been thinking about whether, you know, over time, these substances that are perceived immediately like gold, you can potentially learn to perceive them differently. You know, if you know that something like gold it has historically been mined by slaves under exploitative conditions. Maybe you see gold and you are disgusted with it. Maybe you can learn how to, maybe your second nature could be gold for you 
lacks the luster it once had, right? So maybe that's also a way to historicize, to materialize uh, these colors and these qualities. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think in the case of the Hawks translation of Hong Meng as uh, golden days, what's the, the gold that he seems to be driving at, it almost it has a lot to do with this story being uh, connected to memory and to these kinds of these bittersweet images, these haunting images of youth. And so the golden quality seems to be, this is my interpretation, connected to that more directly than um, simply, you know, the glimmer of a golden surface. And so I want to, there's some prefatory remarks that Hawks translates. One of the instances where he uses the expression golden days. So let me just, let me, maybe I'll read this real quickly. Uh, And so he he says, so this is Hawks translation of uh, Tao Shechen's prefatory remarks. He says, having made it, an utter failure of my life. I found myself one day in the midst of poverty and wretchedness, thinking about the female companions of my youth. As I went over them one by one, examining and comparing them in my mind's eye, it suddenly came over me that those slips of girls, which is all they were then, were in every way, both morally and intellectually, superior to the grave and mustached senior I have now become. The realization brought with it an overwhelming sense of shame and remorse. And for the while, I was plunged in the deepest despair. There and then, I resolved to make a record of all those recollections of those days I could muster. Those golden days when I dressed in silk and ate delicately. When we still were nestled in the protecting shadow of the ancestors and heaven still shined on us. I resolved to tell the world now, in defiance of all my family's attempts to bring me up properly, and all the warnings and advice of my friends, how I had brought myself to this present wretched state in which uh, having mm-hmm. frittered half a life away I find myself without a single skill etc cetera, etc cetera. and so what's, what's interesting there is that we see again Hawks is associating the golden days with this kind of this this memory these haunting memories but it's important to realize yeah. that in the original neither Hong nor Jin appears and so this is very much uh, a kind of a, an interpretive addition, and so maybe you, you're wondering at this, at this moment, you know, is this is this justified? Is Hawks going off on one of his crazy tangents, or is he really on? To, is he really on to something here? Yeah. And I do believe he is on to something here, but it, it's going to take a little, a few more moments to um, to explain this um, this state of affairs, and we're going to see some textual evidence supporting Hawks' translation in the end. Uh, at the same time that basically it's going to be important to distinguish kind of two, two predominant senses of gold that, that are being used. And so we, we've already discussed gold as a kind of a standard, a, a standard form of value. But these golden days seems to be gold not as timelessness, but rather as um, a kind of fleeting, the, almost the opposite of um, timelessness gold as a kind of evanescence yeah. mm-hmm. like like a like a shimmering or something yeah uh, yeah a shimmering a, a a kind of um a passing moment which nevertheless maybe it is if it is um timeless it's timeless in its evanescence and that's kind of the, how the dialectic swings the expression I, I was thinking of really was um the idea of golden hours 
uh, these the moments maybe in the morning or when, when the sun is setting where you have this where the moment demonstrates its own fleeting when the sun's setting and when you observe the sun setting it's very easy in that moment to realize that you know this life is itself a fleeting phenomenon i i we've talked before about how the difference between the xiao meng and the da meng the, the the big dream and the small dream right where the big dream is life itself it's it's almost as if in the the twilight hours in these liminal moments these liminal, liminal temporal moments where the colors are extraordinary that's when the uh da meng reveals itself as meng right before it it seems separate from the dream but just for a moment you can kind of grasp that this really is a dream and so if we think about this more now we have it's almost as if yeah like gold is glimmering right uh it, it is this reflective moment it's almost as if the um the reflection of light corresponds with one's own mental reflection of of one's own life and so I think you see this a lot. And once you realize that you can have a correspondence between different forms of reflection and recollection and memory and these various, potentially any kind of self-referential or recursive form will uh, will trigger this association. And so now I'm getting to the part where I'm, I'm going to talk about why, like why I think there is something in this Wuxing system that we shouldn't immediately... Uh, dispose of on account of its association with forms of like pseudoscience, pseudomedicine that are obviously, if not only uh, not helpful, but probably actively harmful to a lot of people, right? I, I, I'd still say that there, there's kind of this need to, uh, to navigate the space between a complete rejection of all correlative systems and a, um, a complete acceptance of it which which leads to uh, false belief and and superstition and illusion and and self deception and so on and so forth, and so what's emerging here I would say is that okay it's almost like we see now that gold it's not really a color it's more like color itself it's light itself it's the process of light being reflected it's a form of light that you can because you can't really look at light directly if you look at the sun you're going to go blind and so when you right. what's so exceptional about a sunset is that this is a moment when you can almost look directly at the light it's as if the refraction that's occurring is what allows you a more direct kind of experiential or phenomenological uh, perception what's interesting then is when you go back to the wuxing system suddenly you realize that all the colors in that system are similar to this to gold and being they aren't really colors in, in a sense it's not simply green it's not simply black and white and red and yellow I, I would say each of the colors that have been selected for the system are these meta colors if you want you know so rather than green it's you could say it's verdant it's right yeah uh it's kind of a, a description of green a, a kind of an over us overabundance of green is 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 it somehow like green greenness yeah rather than green right? itself and, and so we, we've already talked about this in the context of uh, uh, Qing Feng, the uh, which Hawks translates as Green Sickness Peak, where he's associating the green with, I, I think, with love sickness, which is, uh, again, a uh, characteristic of youth. And so if we go 
so I kind of I I kind of go quickly through all these um, these colors. So with green, it's gonna it's gonna be Ching, right? Famously, we we discussed this as well. Ching has a million different. Uh, is it green? Is it blue? Is it dark green? Is it light blue? Is it indigo blue? Is it black? You know, or or yeah. is it not a color at all? It seems to kind of bleed out of its categorical space, and so it, it seems to have this this association then with um, youth or the eternal spring of youth, which again reminds us of this idea of a, of a fleeting moment or an eternally fleeting moment. Same thing with Hong, right? It's not just red, it's a kind of the boldness of red, the boldness of youth, of passion, of blood, of heart and love and, and so on and so forth. It's also the, a kind of richness. Here Hong becomes associated with Ju uh, Vermilion, which is again, in a sense, the richest form of red. Again, this this Chinese redder than red, r- richer than blood, and you can just you can do the same thing for with white, which um, is associated. With, white is already we know that white sometimes is considered not a color, but the combination of all colors. It's the universal color. In the Wuxing system, it's uh, associated with with gold actually, and, and with metal, and with precious metal, and so white actually seems to correspond in this system with gold in the sense of its being a standard, a standard value. And, and the final color to mention would be um, yellow, which in the Wuxing system is tool or soil. And so it, I, I would almost associate that with dust. You know, it's a kind of a kind of yellow dust or also maybe the ash, which emerges from fire. Uh, and so you, you can see how this is very hand wavy, and this isn't meant to be uh, a science. You know, it's, you can't make medical decisions based on this. Like, please don't. But you can see how this probably is rooted in our our experiences, in our like in the symbols that we use to denote our experiences, and in our experience of the symbols that are used to denote our experiences. And, and so. If we, a few examples, I think that will show that there is a, a basis to Hawks's um, associating Hong with golden, with golden days, or Hong Lo with golden days. We also, we've seen in, throughout the, the novel, we've seen a lot of the, this term, uh, the, the red dust, the Hong Chen, which is interesting. Uh, it, it has a long tradition. So I've been looking through the records to see it seems like the first use of that is almost 2,000 years ago. Bangu, the uh, the great uh, historian, uh, writer of the uh, the Han Shu, the the Book of Han, he uses the expression Hongchen, which maybe for the first time in in, a, in the transmitted materials in a a poem called Shi uh, Du Fu, a rhapsody um, on the Western capital. Uh, Chang'an at the time. And again, what's, what's interesting here is that this Hongchen, which is which f- figures so prominently in the novel, the reason why, I mean, the reason why it's Hongchen and not, you know, Huangchen, because traditionally dust and, and soil in China is associated with uh, yellow, right? And, and a, lot of it, a lot of the soil is, I, I think, at least in the north, yellowish, right? Yeah, and so there, yeah, there, and... Ex- Exactly, and that's why 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 yellow is associated with tu, as you were saying, right? right? And so why is it why is it red dust, not yellow dust, based on the system? 
but the idea seems to be that this is not simply the dust of the earth, but it's the dust of the earth that has been uh, it's kind of been kicked up, right? And, and so sometimes it's associated with another expression, Fei-chen, flying dust. So the, the, in, this, in this ephemeral moment, the dust has been kicked up and the, the setting sun is illuminating the dust. And in that moment, the red of the sun transfers its redness to the dust. And that's what gives you this expression. Mm-hmm. At least according to, that's according to some understanding of, of the term. And so you can see how you, you, you would have this expression of red dust where it's kind of in the space between uh, red fire and yellow soil, right? So it's red soil in a sense. It's in the space between these two categories in the Wuxing system, which, by the way, are uh, next to each other. You could say that's by accident. Um, or you could say, you know, maybe there is a certain logic, even if it's not, uh, mm-hmm. it's not a, strictly speaking, a scientific logic. It's more of a phenomenological logic. And so, and you can kind of go on with this kind of analysis. And, and so I, I would say the only issue that, that emerges is that if you start thinking about the Ushin correlations of the different characters, uh, what happens is that there really is a difference between golden days and uh, the gold that's represented, I'd say, especially in the character of uh, Shri Baochai, where she is, remember, her association with um, Bao Yu is that he has the jade and she has the golden locket. And, and this this image emerges later, actually, in, in a dream where, you know, uh, he disavows gold and, and he expresses his love for uh, for wood, right? Which is again Lin Daiyu, uh, and she's the she's associated with wood and with um, the spring, and with yep. and with greenness and with Qing, and so you have the the risk here is that you know if you start thinking about gold as these these golden sunsets, you, you're going to kind of miss that the gold that uh, Bao Chai represents is very much a different kind of um, a kind of different kind of timelessness, a different kind of eternity. Her whole, you know, my sense is that her whole uh, kind of ideology is an embrace of tradition, an embrace of order, family, and the production of, you know, replication of one's family unit, you know, having children. And so actually, if you go back to the, you could go all the way back to the Western, the Western Joe, starting with the 11th century BC, and you'll see writing on gold, you know, the Jinwen writing from which um, modern Chinese derives. Oh, I didn't know and that. If you, and so you have these wonderful, uh, really magnificent Western and Eastern Zhou bronzes. And there's a set expression that uh, appears on, on all these bronzes. It's probably the most common expression to appear on these bronzes, which is zizi sun sun yong bao yong, which means, you know, may your sons and daughters forever cherish and use this vessel. Uh, and so yong is uh, like uh, the word for forever, right? Bao is actually bao yu. It's the same. It's the same to treasure, but I guess in here, I, in, a, in a verb capacity, I, I guess. And, and so that kind of eternity, that kind of metal value, if you want, that kind of, um, that white metal, in, according to the Wuxing system, is to be associated with uh, Shri Baochai, 
And, and again, it's, it's even in, in her name where she is the, the, the precious chai, the precious metal, the precious uh, hairpin. Hairpin, yeah. As opposed to uh, Lin Dayu, who, uh, who represents a more a rejection of traditional values to a certain extent, who, who represents spring and you know youth and and poetry and 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 all these things and so that's kind of i guess i guess the final distinction there would be i guess between golden hours which we can have that's going to be bao yu and uh dai yu and and some other characters as well versus something like uh golden seals right gold as kind of um enshrining traditional uh systems of of family and state and maybe like Confucian values and what have you. In terms of, and so I've kind of gone on for a long time, and uh, maybe you're wondering like, well, is there textual support for this? <laughs> and the answer is yeah. I would say actually we've already discussed in chapter five the song dedicated to Miao Yu that who whose name Hawks translates as Adamantia, uh, and actually there's a really there's one line from that song that very kind of encapsulates all these ideas where, and so if we look through the Hawks translation, he says, this is about Miao Yu, who, as we will recall, um, is living in, in a nunnery, but ultimately will have a kind of um, a downfall and, and have to leave that setting, that kind of um, peaceful, idyllic setting in, in some sense. And, and so the poem here reads, sad it seemed that your life should be in dimlit shrines wasted all the sweets of spring untasted and so if you actually there's a lot going on with the sweets of spring there the original actually is uh we've seen that before that's that's the hong is that the red that i'm talking about the hong fen like red powder specifically the kind of powder that uh generally women would wear uh beautiful women in, in their youth right here we have not just red, but the red of youth. This kind of redder than red, uh, and then then julo is actually it's being used interchangeably with honglo, and so it's vermilion towers, and so that's actually completely obscured in Hawks' translation, which is fine because he he has other intents there, but um, that actually supports his association, the, the kind of associative uh, system that he is proposing, where we see again that um, the colors being used aren't colors in a traditional sense. They are these um, these charged uh, particles, if you will, the, the hongfen, the julo, and then the and then the spring colors, the chunsu, which again sounds a lot like ching. Ching is not simply green. Uh, ching is the uh, the greenness of spring, of youth, of vitality. It's a it's a kind of vivaciousness first and a a color value second, if at all. And so that's kind of that's kind of a pushback against another approach would be, okay, well what's what's hong? It's fine, let's let's give it a scientific standard. That's fine the exact frequencies, let's find the exact materials being used, as if by uh, collecting all this data you can simply get closer to the the heart of human experience but it, i don't think that's how it works and, and actually there's a certain a certain risk in that kind of like approach to science where you know it's a kind of scientific materialism that it almost seems to be it has no room for humans as humans it's it it knows only objects and it knows only objective forms to the extent that the risk is that you you basically 
to make a, a social science falsifiable, you know, cohering thereby with a kind of Popperian conception, arguably misconception of what science is, you're, you're going to make humans predictable in a way that is inhuman. You're, you're basically making humans inhumanly predictable, you know, which sounds to me like it's going to dovetail with various forms of symbolic, but also literal violence. Because, I, I mean, actually, David Graeber uh, passed away recently. And one of his kind of one of his key insights is that mm-hmm. humans are generally unpredictable. But, you know, if you if you impose an extreme form of violence, suddenly their behavior is fairly predictable, right? They're either going to fight or they're going to flee, right? And now suddenly you have this, this infinity of human experience and potential reduced down to this simple binary that suddenly can be measured, that can be around which predictions can be made. And so that's kind of what I've been... Uh, what I've been kind of uh, in various capacities uh, reacting to lately. You probably saw there's the one guy who basically produced the the phrenology algorithm to show how over time various paintings uh, demonstrated greater and greater trustworthiness. There's really a, a, a real danger when you have this kind of like data-centric approach that actual knowledge will be destroyed and that unstated uh, assumptions, maybe even unconscious assumptions, are going to affect the results in, in a way where you basically, in, instead of actually studying the world and, and forming new opinions and beliefs about it, you end up you know, producing these weird mirror images of, of your assumptions just through this, this noise uh, that you've created through a kind of a, the overproduction of just pure data and the underproduction of um, the knowledge in a tr- traditional sense. Okay, so thanks for listening. I w- was that at all? Do you have a better sense now for what it means to be Wuxing pilled? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I um, I do think it's interesting considering the the points about color and elements in the five in the in the Wuxing. What like what? Do you kind of make of the idea? I think that Hawks did touch on this in the in his introduction that color is universal, but at the same time, the cultural associations of color are sometimes not universal, and that being part of the reason for choosing gold or sometimes green or other uh, other colors when the Chinese tradition, the, the 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 literal translation would be red from 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 Hong. You're right. Hawks has this great remark where he's um, he says. The reason why he didn't go with uh, a dream of golden girls was that, quote, the yeah. vision of suntan bathing bells, <laughs> which it evokes, is far too is too far removed from the fragile blossoms of the novel to have been considered seriously, which is so funny. I, I see what he's going at there. I'm also reminded of a terrible TV show from the 80s, uh, Golden Girls. Yeah. And so even from like a – you would not want to call this – story uh golden girls yeah that was what that was what it brought to mind for me as well yeah right uh, but the thing is i suppose it wouldn't have existed at the time that hawks was translating no and so i, I guess it's become even worse <laughs> but it's one of those things where uh you remember obviously the rise of isis in the middle of the, this decade okay <laughs> it completely transformed the meaning of the word isis to a lot of people you know for many people it had been the name of an ancient egyptian god you know um, yeah, that that Bob Dylan song is problematic. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, well, there's this 
British TV show, Downton Abbey, which is, you know, an upstairs, downstairs type drama set in the Edwardian era, I think. So kind of early 20th century. And they had a dog called Isis. And then in between one season and another, you know, Isis kind of burst out of Iraq and set, you know, much of the Middle East kind of uh, ablaze, as it were. And and so in the next season of the uh, of the show, the dog had mysteriously been killed. Oh no! <laughs> and I just thought that that was kind of similar to the to the Golden Girls point. Oh, and, wow. But the thing is that what that presents an interesting uh, example of the translator's dilemma, right? Where you can be faithful, you can faithfully adhere to the text, but lose some fluency in the language that you're translating into. Or you can be less faithful in your adherence to the text and gain fluency, but lose some of the symbolic significance or other, some of the meaning beyond merely the literal meaning. Uh, And I guess that's part of what he's struggling with, right? Definitely. Yeah. I have this line from the text where it's, you know, you're a translator, you're kind of just like human beings, you're stuck between uh, history and the present from heaven and earth. You're going to make a translation, but you're not going to make it in the conditions of of your own choosing. And and, and so for Hawks, you know, the, the image of sunbathed bells weighs like a nightmare on his uh, living genius. But uh, maybe over time, maybe that that door will open again. Yeah. And so there is kind of just the tra- I guess the translator has to get a lay of the land and kind of go for it and. and I guess yeah, it's not going to be a, a. It is a practice. It's an art, in the sense of uh, a, an artifice, a, a practice, and that's actually good. I, I mean, that's fine. I, we shouldn't always be striving for. It seems like on a certain level, um, maybe on the psychological level, there there's not going to be the forms of objectivity aren't the same as they are for atoms and for billiard balls. You have to accept. You have to give, even scientifically or, or social scientifically, you have to leave a little room for improvisation. Yes. It's almost, I almost think that like, it's almost as if certain psychological, uh, you know, predispositions are more suited for this kind of work. I see a lot of people who really like, they seem frustrated with the study of, of human beings because they, they want this absolute predictability and I wonder if, you know, like, yeah, maybe, you know, if you have this like really strong engineering mindset and if you try to apply that to humanistic studies, it's going to end up seeming kind of fascistic. <laughs> I, I I don't know if there's a better way to say that, but like, no, see, I, I, I can see what you mean. Uh, <laughs> you know, if, if every person's a problem, uh, yeah, I guess you have to embrace, I guess, problem in a broader sense of the term, where it's not something to be solved necessarily immediately. It's a um, something to be studied and to be something like that. Should we, should we end it there? I feel like this has gone. It's been a pretty long episode, so yeah, I think that that's a good a good time to to call it. I am I am looking forward to doing next chapter because I think it's quite a fun one, you know. Until next time, this has been Rereading the Stone. Uh, if you want to contact us, we love feedback, comments, critique. Uh, we are on social media at Rereading Stone. We have a Facebook page. Check that out. A Reddit page. And we hope you join us for the next uh, installation. Uh, bye-bye. Thanks very much, everyone. Bye-bye.